what's happening in the world right now coming up on NTD News. First, our top stories. Michigan taking steps to curb gun violence. A red flag law just signed with the intention of intervening and saving lives. Is this the best policy for the public? We discuss this with an expert. Controversy in Florida in the wake of the NAACP's travel advisory for black people to the state. Some are criticizing the association's chairman for living in Florida himself. We have his reaction. Hundreds of bills supporting Democratic interests failed to pass in California. We take a look at why the Democrat supermajority didn't pass them. Two students sue their Michigan State University professor after she allegedly uses their money to support abortion provider Planned Parenthood. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Our top news today is on gun policy in Michigan. Governor Gretchen Whitmer signed a red flag gun law yesterday. She did so just outside Detroit with state lawmakers and people affected by gun violence in attendance, one of them being gun safety advocate Gabby Giffords, a former Arizona congresswoman who survived a gunshot to the head. Governor Whitmer said, quote, we have heard too many times from those who knew a mass shooter who had expressed concern in advance about that mass shooter's intentions. She says the new law is a mechanism to step in and save lives. Joining us live to discuss this is John Lott, the president of the Crime Prevention Research Center. John, it's great to have you with us. Is this the right thing to do to protect the public as well as law-abiding gun owners? Uh, Unfortunately, I mean, I understand the desire there, but I don't think it's a very serious solution. Uh, Look, uh, the only thing that red flag laws do is take away a person's legally owned gun. About 99% of the time, they're used to stop people who are who you're concerned may commit suicide. And if you believe somebody is really suicidal, simply taking away their gun, only doing that, is not a very serious solution. There's not actually already a better law on the books in Michigan, as well as all the other states, and that is these civil commitment or involuntary commitment type laws. What happens in those cases is that if somebody's concerned that somebody's a danger to themselves or others, they'll call the police. Police will come out and evaluate them. If the police believe that there's a reasonable probability that the person is, in fact, a danger to themselves or others, they can take them in for an immediate uh, mental health evaluation. Depending on the state, you'll have either two or three experts look at the person, and if they agree that there's a reasonable chance that the person is a danger to themselves or others, there can be an immediate court hearing. If somebody can't afford a lawyer, one's provided for them. And then at that point, the judge will hear evidence. And if the judge thinks it's likely that somebody's a danger to themselves or others, then the judge has a range of options. They can say, look, if you voluntarily go and see outpatient treatment from a mental health care expert, uh, we'll have you come back in a week or two, and we'll, we will reevaluate the situation. They could take away the person's driver's license. They could take away the person's gun. And in the most extreme case, they can go and involuntarily commit the person. The problem with red flag laws is they don't have any of those types of protections. The only thing that a judge sees is a piece of paper with a written complaint. He doesn't talk to the person that the complaint is made about. He doesn't talk to the people who made the complaint. Uh, there's no hearing when the gun is initially taken away from the person. And again, the the only thing that's done is just a fraction of what you're able to do under involuntary commitment type rules, and then is take away a person's gun. If somebody is really suicidal, or if they're really a danger to other people, 
how is only taking away their legally owned gun going to stop them from killing themselves? There's so many other so ways. John, I, I know you point on some of these personal me methods of intervening here in, in, in terms of the alternatives to red flag guns. Now let's talk about the enforcement here. Michigan's red flag gun law, some local sheriffs said they're not going to enforce it if they don't think it's constitutional. What do you think is going to happen here? Right. Well, I mean, there's due process type concerns that are there. I mean, uh, you're taking away somebody's basic right to self-defense and you're doing it without a court hearing. You're just doing it based solely on a written complaint. Uh, the person can't challenge the evidence that's being provided. Uh, so, I mean, they're real due process concerns. And, you know, uh, even when there is eventually a hearing uh, with uh, red flag laws, uh, you're often talking about $10,000 or so cost to go and hire a lawyer to go and represent you in those hearings. That's a lot of money. The vast majority of people who go through that process don't hire a lawyer because even if they want to keep their guns, the only thing that happens to somebody in those cases is to take away their guns. And I may want to keep my guns, but is it worth $10,000 to be able to do it? Most people don't aren't willing, even if they have the money, aren't willing to spend $10,000 on them. Talking about some of the financial ramifications here, a case series in the Annals of Internal Medicine says extreme risk protection orders are intended to prevent mass shootings. That paper in 2019 by Wintemute, Pear, and Schleimer found that 80% of those committing violence in public on multiple victims make threats or behave in a manner suggesting they're going to attack beforehand. Does this lend any support to the case for red flag laws? I don't think it's a very serious study. I mean, look, there's so many things that people have Monday morning quarterbacking on, things that happen that they go and attach additional significance to. Over half the mass public shooters in the last 25 years were actually seeing mental health care professionals uh, within six months of their attack. And yet in not one single case did any of those mental health care professionals, these are experts, some of them internationally known experts, were they able to identify any of these individuals as a danger to themselves or others? Uh, to go and suggest that others who are not even experts to go and be able to do that. Look, there's, you read the diaries, you read other things, there's so many times that, that people will afterwards will say, well, I should have understood this, I should have seen this. But, you know, the, the fact is, uh, I think it's extremely difficult, and, uh, uh, and it just doesn't happen. Well, John Lott, thanks for helping us assess the validity of that study. President of the Crime Prevention Research Center, John Lott, really great to have you with us today. Thank you very much. Turning now to Arizona, where a judge has dismissed former gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake's election case. He says she failed to prove evidence of significant misconduct in the election. Lake's attorney argued that there was questionable ballot counting and verification. He said around 270,000 ballots with signatures were verified in less than three seconds. The judge said he won't consider the length of time because no standard exists in Arizona law. Lake lost the election to Katie Hobbs by about 17,000 votes, but she challenged the results. The same judge initially dismissed Lake's case. But the Arizona Supreme Court allowed the part of it dealing with ballot signatures to proceed. The judge said Lake failed to prove misconduct within the election board or an amount of misconduct that would have impacted election results. 
Turning now to the NAACP's travel advisory for black people to the state of Florida. Association Chairman Leon Russell reacted to criticism that he himself lives in the Tampa Bay area. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the ongoing controversy. Russell appeared on MSNBC's The Readout to talk about the recent wave of criticism of the travel advisory. We haven't told anybody to leave. In fact, the NAACP is encouraging folks to stay here and fight. Russell says now is actually the time for certain groups to stand their ground. It's black people, LGBT community, the immigrant community, women need to stand our ground in Florida and fight. The travel advisory stated that Florida is openly hostile toward African-Americans, people of color, and LGBTQ plus individuals. Florida Republican Party Chairman Christian Ziegler had drawn attention on Twitter to the fact that Russell lives in the Tampa area. Ziegler wrote that it's time to step up and move. If you think our state is so bad, the Florida GOP will help with moving costs. NAACP President Derek Johnson accused Florida Governor Ron DeSantis of using race as a tool to weaponize against people. Therefore, we are advising African Americans and others that if you travel to Florida, beware. Congressman Byron Donalds disagrees with the NAACP's warning, calling it silly. Donalds told Fox News that he's lived in Florida since graduating from high school. The only hostility I feel is this inflation hitting my pocketbook, I'll tell you that, because that inflation hitting everybody, that is hostile. Donalds called on Americans to get past this stuff. We can't be using race to weaponize our politics and to weaponize our media. Critics accused DeSantis of not wanting to teach African-American history in Florida. That's due to his opposition to an advanced placement course on the topic. DeSantis says he opposed content in the course such as queer theory, slavery reparations, abolishing prisons, and Black Lives Matter. He said the course had a political agenda and accused it of indoctrinating, not educating students. The Florida legislature passed legislation this year, which increased requirements for the teaching of African-American history in schools. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. From coast to coast, around 300 bills failing to pass in California. Many of those bills would have pushed Democrats' interests. So why did the supermajority not pass them? Let's take a look. Approximately 300 bills failed to pass California's Assembly and Senate Appropriations Committees last week. The bills were part of what is known as a suspense hearing. That's when the Senate refers any proposals with a minimum $50,000 effect to the Senate Appropriations Committee. And the Assembly refers those exceeding $150,000 to the Assembly Appropriations Committee. Those that survive are reviewed by the other House's Appropriations Committee before being sent to the floor for final consideration. More than 1,100 bills were considered in the fast-paced sessions. However, many failed to pass. Among those were bills that represented Democrats' interests, who hold a supermajority. Lawmakers were potentially eyeing the state's $30 billion deficit following Governor Gavin Newsom's May budget revision announced a week before. During a press conference announcing the May budget revision, Newsom advised caution when passing bills. We have all these amazing bills. They're amazing. I mean, nothing worse. You know, I, I sit here, I, I care about what they care about. The vast majority of the bills I get, I'm like, I, boy, I'd love to do that. You know, I want a little expression of a deeper understanding now of the nature of the budgetary constraints and just get it done in the budget. Some of the bills that failed to advance were about promoting abortion access, climate initiatives, gun control, and homelessness. The Assembly Appropriations Committee told reporters after the hearing that it is a different time that we have to operate in, so it is a lens that we have to look through all the bills. However, not only Democrats issued got stalled. 
A Republican assemblyman introduced a bill targeting retail theft failed. After it failed to pass, he said there is absolutely no fiscal or non-political argument the Appropriations Committee could make as to why the retail theft bill should not have been sent to the floor for a full vote. Californians in our retail businesses deserve to know the real data behind retail theft. Concerns about the budget will now be debated by the legislature in the coming weeks. A new study says California is the worst state for military retirees. The biggest factor was California's economic environment. It ranked last among all states. Personal finance company WalletHub published the study. California also ranked first for least affordable housing and has one of the largest populations of homeless veterans. It also has the second fewest job opportunities for retired veterans and ranks 49th in the veteran-owned business category. California also taxes military pensions, while most states don't. However, the state offers the ninth highest ranking in the quality of life category. It also has the second highest ranking for the number of veterans affairs facilities per number of veterans. Retired Army Colonel Carl Castro said veterans should consider more personal reasons for choosing a state to retire. He says they should look at where they feel the most joy and comfort and how close they will be to family. And coming up, only nine days left before the deadline for raising the U.S. national debt. How could a potential debt default impact American families and individuals? We have that story for you just after the break. Welcome back. We're continuing our program with speculation that has surfaced that President Biden could quote-unquote use the 14th Amendment to raise the borrowing limit of the U.S. government. We delve into the details of this curious theory with an expert. Have a listen. Joining us now is Rob Nadelson, constitutional scholar, to talk about this debt ceiling saga. Thank you for joining us, Rob. It's an honor to be with you. Can you tell us how is it possible to interpret a Civil War era amendment designed to make sure the Union could pay off its debts for stopping the Confederate secession to mean the president can unilaterally raise the nation's borrowing limit? It's an extraordinary jump, isn't it? The uh, 14th Amendment is a long amendment. It was adopted for several reasons, but one of the reasons it was adopted was to prevent a future Congress, which might be dominated by former Confederate members, from repudiating the Union war debt. So there is a provision in there which says that the public debt of the United States shall never be called into question. But the Constitution also says that the agency for incurring the public debt is the Congress, not the president. The president has no power at all under the 14th Amendment except to enforce the law and the current debt limit, not what he wants it to be, but the current debt limit is the law that he has to enforce. The president is the enforcer, of course, and Congress makes the laws. Senator Elizabeth Warren says if Republicans are going to prevent a deal to raise the debt ceiling, it's up to the president to find alternative options, something we touched on here. So is it necessary to raise the debt ceiling in the first place? Well, in my opinion, no. And frankly, in my opinion, we would probably be better off if we did not raise the debt ceiling. Here's, here's what not raising the debt ceiling does. It means that the federal government cannot go further into debt. The existing debts continue to be out there, and we continue to pay them and refinance them as necessary, but it means that we can't go further into debt. 
That means that we have to run a balanced budget. So when people talk about, oh, you know, the horrors of raising the debt ceiling, what they're really telling you is that unlike 75% of the American people, they don't want the federal government to run a balanced budget. So not raising the debt ceiling means that we return to a balanced budget. In my view, that would be a good thing. We have to do it eventually anyway. We can't continue to run up debt without economic disaster or uh, and or default. And we're better off if we return to a balanced budget earlier than if we kick the can down the road. So, Rob, the U.S. takes in money every day from taxes and other revenues, and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says if the debt ceiling isn't raised, they're going to have to make some adjustments. None of them are good, she says. Now, for example, if the United States defaults on its debt, then that means 60 million Americans who rely on Social Security payments might have their checks delayed, causing hardship. What's your reaction to this? Well, look, the United States isn't going to default on its debt. Uh, we are taking in, the federal government is taking in about eight times the money necessary to, to handle debt service, in other words, to pay off debt. So what, all that means is the federal government is going to have to find um, places elsewhere to cut in order to reduce its budget to, 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 to the level of revenues. It's something, as I said, we're going to have to do anyway. And I think almost any viewer today can think of examples of ways in which the federal government could, uh, could save money. Federal, where do you think also, those cuts need to be made? I mean, would any of those disproportionately affect the most vulnerable in society? Uh, there would be no requirement that they that they do so. I mean, there are certain core elements of government that we continue to operate. Uh, we might uh, have to cut back on some of the politically correct projects that the Biden administration likes. We might have to uh, stop students who are uh, going into college from getting themselves hugely in debt, maybe by trimming the student loan program. We might have to do things like that, but there would be no need to, 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 to pare back the core functions of government. Some difficult decisions to make. Rob Nadelson, constitutional scholar, really do appreciate your analysis. Thank you. Appreciate it. More on this topic, how would a possible U.S. default impact American families? The situation people face could be worse than the economic period in the 70s and 80s. Here's the story. White House and House Republican negotiators will meet again today to discuss how to raise the $31 trillion debt ceiling. This as the so-called X date fast approaches, with possibly just nine days left for the deadline. This comes after President Joe Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy could not reach an agreement in their meeting on Monday, but vowed to keep talking. However, in the event of a failure to raise the debt ceiling, individuals and families would be affected in painful ways. Here's Associate Professor of Finance at Indiana University, Ryan Brewer. Individuals and families would be affected by this uh, in ways that, again, we really don't want to face. There would be a drop in the demand internationally for the dollar, causing inflation in the United States. So there would be deflationary pressure and inflationary pressure at the same time. Unemployment would rise. Interest rates would rise, as I said. And consequently, we would have we would enter into a realm of stagflation, uh, pretty pretty similar to what we saw in the late 70s and early 80s. Inflation peaked at an annual rate of around 13% in 1980. Unemployment rates also soared during this period, reaching around 10%. Brewer says that in the event of a default, the situation would be far worse than the 1980s. There would be a, a cascade of problems that we would see that would include internal. Uh, money is not being available for Social Security, Medicare, 
uh, health and human services projects, cost of debt would go up, which means it would cause the economy to lock up significantly. However, the United States has never defaulted on its debt. The U.S. had a debt ceiling system since 1917, and since then, the debt ceiling has been raised around 100 times. In other news, two Michigan State University students are suing their professor. She allegedly compelled each student in her classes to pay her $99, which she used for progressive causes. Amy Wisner works as a professor of marketing at the school. All of her 600 students allegedly had to pay a fee in order to join her course. The money went to membership in her organization called the Rebellion Community. The professor allegedly used the money for her personal political advocacy efforts, for Planned Parenthood funding, and for progressive causes. Around $60,000 was collected from students. The professor also allegedly used some of the money to purchase an RV. The students suing Wisner were particularly concerned about their money going to abortion provider Planned Parenthood. The students say they are pro-life. The FAA announced new funding for airports yesterday. It's awarding over $100 million to 12 airports to help prevent runway incursions. The FAA defines incursion as the incorrect presence of an aircraft, vehicle, or person in an area designed for landing and taking off. The grant money will go towards reconfiguring taxiways that may be confusing, as well as building new taxiways and installing airfield lighting and safety technology. Recipients of the funding include international airports in Miami, Las Vegas, San Diego, and Tucson. Do you find expiration and use-by dates on food labels confusing? Well, if you do, you're not alone. A bipartisan group of lawmakers has introduced a bill that would create an easy-to-understand system used across the U.S. The bill is called the Food Date Labeling Act. It's co-sponsored by Democratic Congressman Josh Gottheimer. He says the food date labeling system would be created by experts and would be universal across the nation. Gottheimer says there needs to be higher standards and more consistency and that the new law would allow food to be sold or donated after a best use by date. The nonprofit organization Feeding America estimates around 120 billion pounds of food is wasted every year. A new survey suggests the vast majority of Americans maintain belief in God, but the percentage of those abandoning specific religions remains at a historic level. The results of the long-running national survey, the General Social Survey, show only 7% of the respondents say they don't believe in God. The rate of respondents saying they believe in some higher power continued its gradual upward trajectory since 2000, reaching a new high of 14%. This corresponds with a decrease in those who believe in God with no doubts. This pushed the overall percentage of spiritual Americans to 86%, but... Survey data suggests that 29% of respondents said they have no religion in 2021. That's a record high. Just 5% said the same back in 1972 when the survey was first administered. And still to come, House Republicans are crying foul over new proposed emission standards and are raising concerns over who will really benefit. And the British Prime Minister won't be shutting down the UK's Confucius Institutes after all. He previously promised to ban them. We'll have the details for you when we return. Good to have you back with us. We're going overseas now. The United States and Papua New Guinea signed a defense cooperation agreement yesterday. 
Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Prime Minister James Murape on behalf of President Biden, who was busy with debt limit talks. I just want to stress this point. It wasn't soft down our throat. It wasn't forced upon us. It was a mutual agreement. There is an old Hawaiian saying that translates loosely to uh, united to move forward. And I think that's the spirit uh, in which we all came together today as Pacific. The agreement strengthens the country's ties as the U.S. attempts to push back China's influence in the Pacific region. Blinken says the pact would enable the U.S. to support the country in building up its defense capacity, tackling illegal fishing, and providing disaster relief. Biden has invited Merape to Washington for a second U.S. Pacific summit later this year. The countries are likely to discuss various issues, including trade and economic ties and maritime security. More than 150 House Republicans have asked the Environmental Protection Agency to cancel its proposed emission standards. They argue the proposal would saddle consumers with higher costs, isolate Americans in rural areas, and increase economic dependence on China. The group is led by Representative Kathy McMorris-Rogers. It sent a letter on May 22nd to EPA Administrator Michael Reagan. The letter calls standards for light and medium-duty vehicles and heavy-duty trucks unworkable and impractical. The letter also states that a fast shift to electric vehicles would only benefit the Chinese Communist Party. That's because China has a stranglehold on the critical minerals supply chain and the manufacturing of EV batteries. The UK says its Confucius Institutes won't be shutting down after all. The British Prime Minister promised to ban the programs, but now he's changed his mind. Beijing calls them culture and language exchange programs, but they're widely seen as a tool used to infiltrate the West. Entity's Malcolm Hudson spoke to an expert who called the U-turn disappointing. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has abandoned his pledge to shut down the 30 Chinese state-sponsored Confucius Institutes here in the UK. Mark Sidwell, director of research for the Henry Jackson Society, had this to say on the decision. It's an incredibly disappointing thing to hear that Rishi Sunak's gone back on his explicit pledge to close down the UK's Confucius Institutes. A Downing Street spokesperson said the government recognises concerns about Chinese interference in universities. They are pulling government funding from the institutes. But they said they currently judge it would be disproportionate to ban them. On the surface, Confucius Institutes promote Chinese language and culture. But Sidwell said they're deeply tied to the Chinese Communist Party's propaganda network. They're effectively propaganda outlets sitting within our our most important academic institutions. And it's an insupportable arrangement. An investigation by the Henry Jackson Society found Confucius Institute staff from China must undergo political vetting and vow to follow Chinese law while abroad. Sidwell said when the institutes are in place, they become engaged in activities wider than just education. They're lobbying politicians, they're reaching out to business groups, and they're constantly spreading a very particular uh, message that comes from the CCP. They won't be holding events that uh, deal in great detail with the the problems of the, the Uyghurs and the Uyghur genocide. They won't be dealing with the crackdown on freedoms in Hong Kong. They won't be dealing uh, with the issues of Tibet. The British government recently passed the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Act. Its aim is to ensure freedom of speech and discussion on university campuses. The act came about for domestic reasons, 
because some speakers at universities were being deplatformed or censored. But it may well be that this will provide a, a different route for uh, a crackdown on the Confucius Institutes because uh, the Confucius Institutes very clearly are not concerned with the values of freedom of speech that are at the core of Western universities and what they stand for. Sidwell said it's enormously important for the UK to study Chinese language and culture, saying it plays a vital contribution in the 21st century. But he added that this must not be done through the distorted lens of CCP propaganda. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News London. All right, and if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Stay tuned for more world news coverage. European Union countries have agreed on a ban in destroying unsold clothing in a bid to reduce waste. And academics from Britain's Oxford University defend free speech amid a row over a feminist who is due to give a talk about gender. We'll have more for you shortly here on NTD News Today. Welcome back to the show. Russia said yesterday it was battling a raid by so-called saboteurs who burst through the border from Ukraine. The attack appeared to be one of the biggest assaults of its kind since the war began 15 months ago. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the fighting. The governor of Russia's Belgorod region says a Ukrainian sabotage group had entered Russian territory in an area bordering Ukraine and was being repelled. He appealed to those who left their homes to stay away for the time being. The cleansing of the territory by the Ministry of Defense, together with law enforcement agencies, continues. Officials reported that at least eight people had been wounded and three houses and an administrative building damaged. A Ukrainian media outlet cited Ukrainian military intelligence as saying two armed Russian opposition groups were responsible for the attack. Both groups reportedly consist of Russian citizens. One of the groups is called the Freedom of Russia Legion. It published a video on Twitter saying they want their children to grow up peacefully and be free so they can travel, study and be happy in a free country. The video ended with the declaration that Russia will be free. Another group also published footage on Monday of a fighter operating an armored vehicle on a country road. Other videos showed pictures and video of what were described as captured Russian servicemen. NTD could not verify the videos. A Ukrainian presidential advisor said the Kyiv government was watching the situation with interest but has nothing to do with it. A Kremlin spokesman said Russian President Vladimir Putin had been informed and that work was underway to drive out what they call the saboteurs. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. European Union governments have agreed to a common position for a ban on destroying unsold clothing and an aim to reduce textiles waste. 27 member states of the European Union agreed on Monday that the bloc should ban the destruction of unsold textiles. It's part of a push towards greater reuse and recycling. The Swedish industry minister said the decision is an important step towards so-called green policies. The regulation will promote the circular economy in the EU by creating a framework for the Commission to set requirements for products in terms of environmental sustainability. 
textile consumption in Europe has the fourth highest impact on the environment after food, housing and mobility. Nearly 6 million tonnes of textiles are discarded every year in the EU, approximately 11 kilograms per person, much of it put into landfill or burned. The new law would also create a new digital product passport, detailing a product's environmental sustainability. The legislative proposal still needs to be approved by the European Parliament before it becomes law. In the UK, a group of academics from Britain's Oxford University are defending free speech amid a row over a prominent feminist that some are trying to cancel. Here's NTD's Jane Worrell with more. Universities must remain places where contentious views can be openly discussed. That's the view of more than 40 Oxford University academics writing in the British newspaper The Telegraph. They intervened amid tensions over Kathleen Stock, a feminist who holds gender-critical views. She's been critical of the gender self-identification plans and also says that trans women aren't women. Now, more than 100 Oxford University students have condemned alleged threats made to the Oxford Union who invited her to a debate. And the university's pro-vice-chancellor has also spoken out for free speech on university campuses. For many, expressing these views could put their jobs on the line. If there is not one vice-chancellor, deputy vice-chancellor, or any senior person in any university in the UK who dares say I believe in biological sex, who dares say there are men and there are women. They would lose their careers. It's the largest row at the university since students called for the Cecil Rhodes statue to be pulled down. Other UK universities have also faced tensions over free speech and gender-critical speakers. The gender-critical feminists, as you call them, the, people, the, the feminists who believe in biological sex, are at the cutting edge of this. They're feisty individuals who just believe that they want to be what they are. Hundreds of trans activists are expected to turn up to protest against Kathleen Stock's debate, which will be held next week. Jane Worrell, NTD News. In France, rights groups suffered a blow after the country's top court approved the limited use of AI tech for surveillance in next year's Olympic Games. This includes facial recognition and new biometric features. Antilles France correspondent David Vives has more for us. France's constitutional court has approved the use of controversial surveillance technology powered by artificial intelligence. With Paris preparing to welcome 600,000 attendees at next year's Olympic Games, the government is set to tighten security measures. A bill approved by Parliament in March paves the way for authorities to use real-time video surveillance tech that employs facial recognition and biometric features on a large scale. Cameras will automatically recognize body positions, gaits, gesture. For example, it could notice unattended bags or analyze the movements of crowds for suspicious behavior. But this new technology is controversial and 38 rights groups have voiced their opposition, describing the plans as a dangerous precedent for other European countries. It will make France the first country in the EU to allow the use of AI-powered surveillance. Legal expert Marc Gauthier says there are several issues with the plans. An individual is not permitted to go so far in the analysis of people's behavior. This is the argument of the impunity of the machine, which has already been used by applications that send you targeted ads and thus spy and listen to your conversations. 
It should also be mentioned that this technology will be able to detect people's intentional behavior on a large scale and will trigger so-called preventative interventions even before a suspicious incident or act. The Constitutional Court in last week's decision limits the use of the new experimental technology to sports, recreational or cultural events in order to combat public order offenses. The government says the measures are needed to prevent terrorist attacks and crowd crushes. Guti says there are questions on the use of data retention by the authorities, which the EU Court of Justice has ruled against in several instances. It is very obvious that the use of such a technology is open to abuse, and the benefits of such an intrusive technology does not seem, according to its purpose, justify its deployment. It's perfectly in line with the ultra-security trend in which France, for example, is currently embroiled in. Gauthier is concerned that the use of AI surveillance tools by France might extend to other countries. The West is very keen on the idea of protecting human rights and individual liberties within legal and political systems. With these new technologies, we are obviously allowing the generalized intrusion in people's lives, whether it's the digital ID, the vaccine health pass, or the carbon pass. In short, all this in fact shapes an environment which goes against the structure of our civilization. The AI surveillance law will be in place until March 2025. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Fresh searches are underway in Portugal in the investigation into the disappearance of British girl Madeleine McCann. Police divers entered the water early on Tuesday at a reservoir about 30 miles from the holiday resort where the then three-year-old girl went missing in 2007. A Portuguese news channel reported that four teams of local officers and at least 20 German officers are involved. German police requested the search, and British officers are overseeing the operation. The prime suspect in Madeleine's disappearance, a German convicted sex offender, is believed to have spent time in the area between 2000 and 2017. Investigators believe he killed Madeleine after abducting her. And coming up, some cultural news. Items from late Imperial China are on display in London. The British Museum is calling the exhibit a global first. Details to come right here on NTD News Today. Glad you're back. You're just in time for a journey through late imperial China. The British Museum is showcasing its items from 19th century China in a first-of-its-kind exhibit. Back then, a third of the world's population was in China, about 400 million people. The Qing Dynasty unfolding on a map, representing the last empire of China. This is the opening item of the exhibition, China's Hidden Century. Well, this is a very innovative exhibition because there hasn't been a 19th century exhibition anywhere in the world before. Some painting shows, some photographs, but nothing of this scale. And that's partly because of the violence of the 19th century. This period was also marked by political unrest and wars and the deaths of millions of people. But the exhibition highlights everyday objects, featuring clothing, accessories, drawings and maps. One section is devoted to the army of the time, which relied on bannermen, the elite hereditary soldiers. And that shows um, one of the elite generals sitting on a, on a 
large chair where he has covered it with a tiger pelt and underneath his black silk boots he's pressing down the head of the tiger which has its eyes closed. Some of the bannermen recorded their lives and travels in writings. One of the key figures of the Qing dynasty was Empress Dowager Cixi, who controlled China's throne for nearly half a century. And she changed her costume about 10 times a day. But this particular robe is so special because it combines European dyes, which came in in the 19th century, this extraordinary purple color, with a motif on the front that derives from Japanese art. You can find this kind of swooping phoenix with peacock feather tail in Japanese screens and textiles of the period. Another highlight is a double portrait, portraits of Lu Shifu and his wife Mrs. Lu by an unknown artist. The paintings were most likely created while the couple was still alive. She dies in about 1876 and she has this extraordinary image which has almost a photographic face and then a beautifully painted blue garment edged with gold embroidery and with jade um, earrings, jade and gold earrings. And she's a very ordinary woman. She's got on well with her husband's wives. She brought up her children to study hard. Um, she stuck to a strict vegetarian diet and she lived in Guangzhou in the far south of China. Wealthy people's belongings reflected the influence of modern, sometimes foreign techniques. Well, this exhibition is huge, and it does touch on the subject. I think most of us in the Western world will not be familiar with this kind of the late empire of China before it turned into the sort of contemporary modern China that we see today. China's hidden century runs until October at the British Museum. Check this out. A rare wristwatch is up for sale this month in Hong Kong. It belonged to the last emperor of China, Aisin Jioro Pui. Phillips expects it to fetch more than $3 million. This Patek Philippe is made of platinum and has a diameter of 1.2 inches. It features a moon phase that shows the moon as seen from the Earth at any given time. Some of its internal mechanisms date back to 1929. The value of this watch lies in its rarity and extraordinary history. Just look at that. The auction house says that the watch went to the Siberia with the emperor. There, he was imprisoned by the Soviet Union for five years. The last emperor gave the watch as a gift to his Russian interpreter, Yorgi Permyakov. The, all these gifts to Permyakov, especially the watch, um, were a sign of something special to him. So when uh, Reginald Johnston, um, his uh, Puyi's tutor, went back to England, um, Puyi gave him an inscribed fan the way he did to Permyakov later on. So these were the kind of things he sometimes did to people that were very special to him. As per today, only three, including this one, wristwatches are known. The watches that previously were sold belonged to emperors were another Patek Philippe that belonged to the last emperor of Ethiopia, and there was a Rolex that belonged to the last emperor of Vietnam. After his return to China, Puyi was pardoned and lived as a civilian in Beijing until his death in 1967. Permyakov kept the watch until his death in 2005. Uh-oh, a steer was captured on the freeway in the Detroit area. The animal had dashed onto the highway and even jumped a median into lanes going in the opposite direction. The steer is named Lester. Wranglers pursued him on the freeway, including one on horseback that eventually roped him. 
The other wranglers rode in ATVs. Michigan State Police wrote on Twitter that the animal has not been charged and is now back in the pasture with other livestock. Lester had been on the run for several weeks. After he and four other bovine animals escaped a ranch, they were relocated there after an earlier outbreak from an animal rescue facility. The other escapees were caught earlier, but wranglers only caught up with Lester last Sunday. A great white shark was spotted chomping on a seal off the coast of Cape Cod. It's the first confirmed white shark sighting of the season in the area. Crew members with the Dolphin Fleet Whale Watch captured the scene Saturday morning. Passengers gasped when the shark surfaced to grab a piece of seal flesh. The entire incident lasted only about seven minutes. The shark was estimated at 12 feet long. The company said whale watching boats rarely meet sharks and sightings of them feeding are unheard of. Cape Cod is the only known congregation of white sharks in the Northwest Atlantic, but experts say they pose little threat to humans. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.